0: Welcome, Heming Brainiacs, back to the Heming Brainiac podcast. Talking about Book 2, Chapter 22, bunch of political crap. Um, my discussion prompt was BYO, because meh. I can read the schmoops. I should read the schmoops. I'm sure there was something important in all that crap, but it was just crap. Um, ha, says Swim, said the Mama Fushi. After the previous rollicking chapters, I'm finding this political intrigue very dull, Laura Weistitz said. Yeah, when he said... At this juncture, the author would have liked to have put a page of dots. He was right. He should have done that. Absolutely, he should have. Um, I this chapter halved my respect for this book. It cut it in half. If if this book was a eight out of ten for me, not that it, I don't think it was, but it was you know it was maybe a seven out of ten. It was a good book. Now it's a four. Um, because the thing that really annoyed me about this chapter is that the, the author acknowledged that it was boring, that this chapter would include a lot of boring political details, um, and then did it anyway, and just thought kind of... They did that thing a lot of creators do when they make something subpar or inadequate, and then think that as long as they acknowledge that it's inadequate, then no one can say that they did it accidentally. You know, so they can kind of, you just have to acknowledge it. If it's a bad joke, you just acknowledge that it was a bad joke and roll your eyes, and that's okay. At least you know it's a bad joke, but it's not, no, you still made a shitty joke. All right. It doesn't excuse it. It just means that you made it and you also are aware of it. So that's worse. And it's just like, kind of like that. And he's done that now a couple of times in this book where the author has acknowledged the, like, defended himself within the book. Rather than fixing the problem that he has obviously noted or noticed, he's just gone, I'll build in the defense in a meta sort of way. And maybe that's clever enough, like that might get some points for being meta, um, for having this little quirky discussion between the author and the editor in the middle of the prose and that'll get me out of the hot water. No. No, no, no. If you know it's boring, fix it. Make it less boring. Don't just acknowledge it's boring and then lump that on your reader. Really, really annoyed me actually because we as the readers are giving him our spare time and we're paying, you know we're buying this book and and forfeiting our spare time to spend it with what this author has to say. Now if they write a boring chapter, that's fine. you know I, I you know I don't like that. you might lose a point or two here uh, for that. But if you know it's boring and acknowledge that in the chapter but still don't fix it, then like if you did it on accident, I can I can look past that. but if you did it knowingly, then what are we doing here? Like why are you wasting my time? Why are you boring me intentionally when I'm kind enough to give up my spare time to spend it on what you've created? Really, really annoys me. So, yeah, the chap the book has dropped to like a 3 or a 4 out of 10 because of that. I might shrug, I might, you know, shake it off. I might bounce back. Maybe I'll become more forgiving if the book has a really strong ending or something like that. But, uh, yeah, no, that's just really annoyed me. Anyway, let's read what apparently the chapter was about, the discussion. At the secret political meeting, a servant runs in and announces the arrival of the important duke. The duke tells him to be quiet before the guy can even finish. Marquis introduces... The man to Julian. He mentions that Julian has an incredible memory. The man quizzes Julian on the contents of the paper, and Julian has it all by heart. Julian is sent into the next room for a while, then called back. The men start talking about what France needs and how they're going to achieve it. By the time he's done, Julian has 26 pages of notes. Despite his best intentions, the narrator decides to include some excerpts from these notes. There is some talk of an assassination in France, of a revolution, of an invasion by a foreign country everyone just sounds like a big blowhard though in the end Julian is asked to memorize the letter and deliver it message to a certain Duke living outside of France cool that that's what we that's that was the that was what he tried to communicate in eight boring pages cool 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 let's see how we go next chapter uh, now let me just two four six seven. It's an eight-page chapter, so it's not a long one. Um, let's see how <clears throat> much of it I can take in. See, that's this is the thing. After the previous chapter where they've knowingly bored me, then I see the next chapter goes for eight pages, and I just think, I just want to put. This, I don't want to read it. I don't want to read this right now, and that's completely the author's fault. And oh, that's just no It's the first chapter I've gotten to where I just think. I would rather do anything else right now than read this because if it's going to be another eight pages like the previous eight pages, which why wouldn't it be when the author is now but demonstrated he's perfectly happy to write inadequate prose, what are we doing here? What What, what is this agreement we've made? All right, chapter 23, The Clergy, Woodlands and Liberty. The first law of all being is self-preservation. It is to live. You scatter hemlock and expect to see the ripening corn, Machiavelli. The solemn personage continued to speak. One could see he knew the subject with a mild and moderate eloquence he, that appealed vastly to Julian. He expounded the following important truths: England, one England has not a guinea at our disposal. Economy and humor are all the fashion there. The saints themselves won't give us any money, and Monsieur Brougham would laugh at us too. It is impossible to get more than two campaigns out of the kings of Europe without English gold. The two campaigns are not enough to against the liberal bourgeoisie. Three, the necessity of forming an armed party in France without which the European monarch, monarchic principle will not hazard even two such campaigns. The fourth point, which I venture to suggest is plain, is this. The impossibility of forming an armed party in France without the clergy. I boldly assert this because, messieurs, I am going to provide... Prove it to you. It is necessary to concede everything to the clergy, because they work away night and day in this business, We are, and are guided by men of the highest abilities, established far away from storms, three hundred leagues from your frontiers. Ah, Rome, Rome, cried the master of the house. Yes, monsieur, Rome, replied the cardinal proudly. Whatever the more or less clever jokes that were fashionable when you were young, I can tell you plainly that now, in 1830, it is the clergy alone, guided from Rome, who speaks to the little people. 50,000 priests, all reciting the same form of words on the day their leaders tell them to, and the people who, after all, furnish the troops, will be more moved by their pastors' voices than by all the trivial verses in the world. This personal reference excited some murmurs. The clergy have an intelligence that outstrips yours. Went on the cardinal, raising his voice. All the steps you've taken towards your great aim to have an armed France, party in France have already been taken by us here some facts are adduced who sent eighty thousand guns to the vendee etc etc, etc. So, so long as the clergy is still denied its woodlands it possesses nothing at the first sign of war the Ministry of finance will write to his agents if there is no money except for the parish priest at bottom france is not a nation of believers and she loves war, whoever gives it to her will be doubly popular for more, for to make war is to starve the jesuits, as the vulgar saying goes, and to make war is also to free those monsters of pride, the French from the menace of foreign intervention. The cardinal was heard with approval. It was essential, he said, that Monsieur de Nerval left the ministry because his name caused needless irritation. At this remark, everyone rose and started talking at once. They will send me out again, thought Julien. But even the canny president himself had forgotten the presence, that very existence of Julian. All eyes became focused on a man Julian recognized. It was Monsieur de Nerval, the first minister whom he had glimpsed at Monsieur de Retz's ball. Confusion was at its height, as the newspapers say in reporting on the chamber. At the end of a long quarter of an hour, silence began to be restored. Then Monsieur de Nerval rose and with an apostolic air, I won't pretend to you, he said in a strange voice, that I do not hold fast to my ministry. If it has been pointed out to me, messieurs, that my name redoubles the strength of the Jacobins by turning many moderates against us. For that I will be willing, most willing, to resign, but the ways of the Lord are discerned only by a few. And he added, looked fixedly, looking fixedly at the cardinal I have a mission, heaven says, said to me, you will either carry your head to the scaffold, or you will re-establish the monarchy in France and reduce the chambers to the condition of the Parliament under Louis XV and Monsieur's that I will do. He ceased, he reseated himself, a great silence fell. What a fine actor, thought Julian. He was falling into the mistake, as usual, of attributing too much intelligence to other people, inspired by the evening's animated debate. He and above all, by the heartfelt nature of the discussion, Monsieur Nerval really did, at that moment, believe in his mission. For all his great courage, the man lacked any common sense. During the silence that followed the fine assertion that I will do midnight," sounded. Julian found something impressive and solemn about the striking of the clock. He was moved. The discussion shortly began again with the increasing zest, and above all, with unbelievable naivety. These people will be able to dispose of me by. These people will have to dispose of me by poison. Julian reflected at certain moments. How can they say such things in front of a plebeian two o'clock struck and still they were talking the master of the house had fallen asleep long since Monsieur de la mole was obliged to ring for fresh candles and mr Monsieur de Nerval had just left at a quarter to two not without having frequently studied julian's face in a mirror that hung near him his departure seemed to make everyone easier while the candles are being renewed, God knows that the man will go to the Tell of the King, said the man in the waistcoats in a low voice of his neighbour, and he could make us seem rather absurd in a record of the future, and I must admit that it showed an extraordinary fatuity of infrontery of him showing himself there before he became a minister. He was one of us and before Folio Changes everything, swallows up a man's concerns. He ought to feel that scarcely had the minister gone out of the Bonaparte's ex-general. Closed his eyes. Then he mentioned his health, his wounds, looked at his watch and departed. I'll wager, said the man in the waistcoat, that the general runs after the minister. He's going to excuse himself for being found here and pretend he's here to guide us. When the drowsy servants had finished setting out new candles. Now, monsieur, said the president, we must deliberate and cease trying to argue with one another. Concentrate on the contents of the note that with 48 hours will be in front of our faraway friends. There's been talk of ministers. Now Monsieur de Nouvelle has left. We may ask, what do ministers matter to us? They'll do what we want. The cardinal assented to this with a subtle smile. Without Nothing could be easier, it seems to me, than to summarise our position, said the young bishop of Agde with a strained and focused heat of exalted fanaticism. Up till then, he had kept silent, but his eye, as Julian had observed, Though calm and gentle at first had lit up after the hour's first debate, now his soul erupted from like lava from Vesuvius. From 1806 to 1814, said he, England's only mistake was not to undertake direct and personal action against Napoleon. From the moment that man had created dukes and chamberlains, from the moment he had established a throne, the missions God confided to him was ended He was fit only for immolation. Holy writ teaches us in more than one place the way to be rid of tyrants. Here, there followed several Latin quotations. Today, monsieur, it is no longer a man that must be sacrificed. It is Paris. All France copies Paris to what end do you um arm... your hundred men in each department, a hazardous enterprise and one of which there will never be an end. For what purpose do you involve all France in something peculiar to Paris? It is Paris alone, with its newspapers and its salons, that per- per- perpetrates evil that the modern Babylon perish. Between the altar and Paris there must be an end. Such a clash could not, could even further the worldly interests of the throne. Why did not Paris dare breathe under Bonaparte? Ask the canon at St. Roch. Oh, there's a page break here. It wasn't until three in the morning that Julian left with Monsieur de Lamont. Oh, thank God. The Marquise was subdued and tired. For the first time in speaking to Julian, there was a note of entreaty in his voice. He asked his word, never to reveal the excess of zeal as he termed it that he had chanced to witness. Don't speak of it to our foreign friend unless he really insists on knowing what our young hotheads are like. What does it matter to them if the state is overthrown? They'll be cardinals and can find refuge in Rome. We, in our chateau, will be massacred by the peasantry. The secret note that the Marquise drew up from the 26-page m- minute that Julian had taken was not finished until a quarter of five. I'm deadly tired, said the Marquise, and one can see it very clearly in this note, which lacks precision towards the end. I'm more unhappy with it than anything I've done in my whole life. Now then, my dear fellow, he went on, go you and rest for a few hours, and for fear that someone might try to abduct you, I'll try... I'll come myself and lock your door. The following day, the Marquise took Julian to an isolated chateau, a fair way from Paris. There they were received by some strange figures, whom Julian judged to be priests. He was supplied with a passport in a false name, but this at last showed his true destination, of which he had continued to feign ignorance. He climbed into the barouche by himself. The Marquis had no doubts about his memory. Julian had recited the contents of the secret note several times, but was much afraid that he might be intercepted. Above all, cultivated the air of a top of a fop, travelling to kill time. He confided in a friendly tone as they left the salon. Perhaps there was more than one false friend at our meeting yesterday. The journey was swift and very sad. Hardly was Julian out of the Marquis's sight than he forgot about the. Secret note and his mission, and he thought of nothing but Matilda's disdain. In a village a few leagues outside Metz, The postmaster came to inform him that there were no horses to be had. It was ten in the evening. Much put out, Julian ordered supper. He walked up and down in front of the door and very gradually worked his way. Without being noticed, into the stable yard. He could see no horses there. Even so, the fellow's manner was odd, said Julian to himself. His coarse eyes were weighing me up. As one may see, he was beginning not to believe implicitly everything he was told. He reckoned he might get away after supper and in order to discover something about his surroundings, left his room to go and warm himself up at the kitchen fire. Imagine his joy when he found the Signor Geronimo, the famous singer. Established in an armchair he had had carried next to the fire, the Napolitan was complaining loudly and making more noise, all on his own account, Then the twenty German peasants crowded open-mouthed around him. These people will ruin me, he cried to Julian. I've promised to sing tomorrow at Mayence. Seven sovereign princes have rushed there to hear me. But, he added in a significant manner, shall we go out and get a breath of air? When they were a hundred paces down the road and could not possibly be overheard, he asked Julian, Do you have any idea what's up? The postmaster is a scoundrel. As I was strolling around, I gave twenty sous to a little scamp who told me everything. There's more than a dozen horses in another stable at the other end of the village. They're trying to delay some courier or other. Really, said Julian, innocently. It was enough. It was not enough to have found out about this deception. Now he had to get away, and in this Geronimo and his friend could not succeed. We'll have to wait until morning, said the singer at last. They're suspicious of us. Perhaps it's you or me thereafter. Tomorrow morning we will order a big meal. Then, while they're getting it ready, we'll go for a walk. We'll make our escape, hire some horses, and reach the next post station. What about your luggage? asked Julian, to whom it had occurred that it might have been Geronimo himself who had been sent to intercept him. There was nothing for it but to eat and go to bed. Julian was still in his first sleep when he was awakened with a start by the voices of two men talking unconstrainedly in his room. He recognized the postmaster equipped with a dark lantern. The beam was directly towards the barouche trunk, which Julian had had carried up to his room. The postmaster's elbow was a man, at his elbow was a man, delving calmly into the open trunk. Julian could only see the sleeves of his costume, which were black and close-fitting. It's a soutane, he said to himself, and he gently gripped the little pistols he had placed under his pillow. Don't be afeard they'll wake Monsieur Le Cure, said the postmaster. <clears throat> the wine they were served with was what with was that you did yourself. I can't find any sign of papers, answered the cure. Masses of linen, scents, pomades, and vanities. It's a fashionable young man, obsessed with his pleasures. The emissary must be the other one, the one who pretends to talk with an Italian accent. The two men got closer to Julian in order to rifle through the pockets of his traveling coat. He was strongly tempted to shoot them as thieves. Nothing could have been less dangerous in its consequences. He was sorely tempted. It, it had, I, "'I'd be nothing but an idiot,' he said to himself. "'I'd compromise my whole mission.' "'This is no diplomat,' said the priest, having searched his coat, and he moved off, which was just as well for him. "'If he touches me in my bed, he will sink, sink himself,' Julian was thinking." He might well be coming to knife me, and that I will not tolerate the cure turned his head, Julian half opened his eyes, imagined his astonishment. It was Abe casttastande Kastad- in fact, although he had although the two had taken care to speak fairly softly, it had seemed to him from the first that he recognised one of the voices. "'Julian was seized with a wild desire to rid the earth of one of the lowest reptiles. "'But my mission,' he reminded himself. "'The cure and his acolyte retired. "'A quarter of an hour later, Julian pretended to wake up. "'He called out and roused the whole house. "'I've been poisoned,' cried he. "'I'm suffering appallingly. "'He needed a pretext to go to Geronimo's aid. "'He found him half-drugged by the laudanum mixed in the wine.' Julian, fearing some trickery of that kind, had drunk chocolate brought from Paris with his supper. He could not succeed in his aim of waking up Geronimo sufficiently to get him to leave. You could offer me the whole of the kingdom of Naples, said the singer, and just now I could not renounce the delights of sleep. But the seven sovereign princes let them wait. Julian departed by himself and arrived at the great personage's residence without further incidents, he wasted a whole morning, vainly soliciting an audience. Luckily, at about four o'clock, the Duke wished to get some fresh air. Julian saw him come out on foot and did not hesitate to go up and ask for Elms. When he was two paces away from the great man, he drew out Monsieur de la Mole's watch and showed it with obvious intent. Follow me at a distance, he was told, without a glance. A quarter of a league further on, the Duke suddenly turned into a little cafe house. It was in a room of his tenth-rate establishment, that Julian had the honour of reciting his four pages to the Duke. When he had finished, start again and go more slowly, he was ordered. The prince took notes. Go, get, get to the next post house on foot, leave your belongings and your carriage here, go to Strasbourg any way you can, and on the 22nd of this month, it was the 10th, be in this same cafe house at midday. Don't leave for another half-day, be silent. These were the only words Julian heard. They were enough to fire him with the highest admiration. This is the way, thought he, to conduct business. What would this great statesman say if he had heard those hysterical chatters three days ago? Julian gave himself two days to reach Strasbourg. It seemed to him he had nothing to do there. He made a large detour. If that devil of an Abe Castandy recognized me, he is not the man to lose me. And how delighted he would be to humiliate me and manage to wreck my mission. The Abe Castanede, chief of police for the Congregation for the Whole of the Northern Frontier, fortunately had not recognized him, and the Strasbourg Jesuits, though extremely zealous, did not think to look very hard at Julian, who, with his cross and blue frock coat, had all the air of a young military man preoccupied with his personal appearance. Alright, there we go, another chapter down. Bad start, good finish. Alright, climbing back up the ranks. You've finished with your boring political talk and gone back into some action, so that's cool. Have your say about the chapter over on the subreddit. Thanks for listening, I'll see ya tomorrow.